hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. I hope you're keeping well wherever you're listening to this. Now in today's episode I bring you a conversation that I had with Phil Mash. Phil is a member of Community Church Putney where he's been for the past 17 years and he's also a freelance cameraman. As a cameraman and as part of his work, he's traveled all over the world and has worked on several well-known TV shows, including House Hunters International, SAS Who Dares Wins, A Place in the Sun and Location, 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 as well as, I should say, having the claim to fame of working his first job as a runner on the opening episode of Teletubbies back in the mid-90s. Phil and I talk about that experience. He lifts the lid on some of the Teletubby antics and secrets of the trade, as well as sharing more openly about the TV industry and life as a cameraman. All of that that we talk about was very interesting, but I have to say that the highlight and the beauty from today's conversation and the thing really that I've been looking forward to sharing with you came as he spoke very openly and tenderly about the journey of grief that both he and his wife went through when in 2011, his wife Rachel gave birth to a stillborn daughter, Laurie Susie. Phil's ability and courage to share with us and to talk so openly about something that is such a painful experience was incredibly moving and truly inspiring. It's also something that I should point out some listeners should be advised as it may be too painful to hear at this time. Nevertheless, I pray and hope that God really speaks to you and comforts you in whatever season of life you're in right now. Phil, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Over now to my conversation with Phil Mash. Phil, it is a pleasure to see you today. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Recently, a photo of Phil as a young man working with the Teletubbies went viral. We're going to put a link to that photo in the description to today's episode so people can check out that um, photo and see you see a younger version of yourself. Not that you're looking old, Phil. I must say. <laughs> I'm looking older. Uh, why don't you talk to us a bit about how you got into being a freelance cameraman and what your life looks like these days? Well, I was I was a Christian. I had a big... Uh, a big kind of um, recommitment to the Lord just before I went to university on a cipher pathfinder venture. I don't know if you remember those, they're Church of England thing. And um, so I was asking God and, and uh, God spoke to me through a sociology textbook. So um, we were studying mass media and there's a line in that, in that textbook uh, that said, a hundred years ago, societal norms were decided by the church and that role today has been taken on by the mass media. I thought that was fascinating. I was like, goodness me, that's, that's absolutely, isn't that the truth? What, what we deem acceptable, what we see as acceptable behavior is, is these days, that role has fallen to the media rather than to church. And I, I, I kind of, I really, that really spoke to me and, and um, I got the bit between my teeth and I, I started applying to film school, um, and at the same time, uh, a job opportunity came up with this very small charity called the Worldwide Message Tribe back in 1996. And it, Andy Hawthorne and Mark Pennells were jumping around on stage in schools sharing the gospel and they needed someone to make videos for them. So you were, you were the original jumping in the house of God? Yeah. Yeah, I did the original video. There you go. Oh, wow. Yeah. The one that... The, that's a claim the, the, to, I mean, surely that's a claim to fame bigger than the Teletubbies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did lots of their videos. 
I really enjoyed that year, actually. Yeah, gap years like that do tend. God does tend to use them quite a lot to shape people's characters and futures. You take a year to kind of pursue God's plans for your life, and often He speaks and does things in your character. I'm a big believer in that. Running the impact training course. So, what happened during that year that led on to the rest of your life? So, during that year, I, I met uh, a producer, a film producer who worked at Shepperton Studios, and she said I should come down and visit. And, and unbeknown to me, she, I kind of turned up and she went, oh, well, we, you know, we, we had a look around the 101 Dalmatian set and it was all quite fun. And, um, and then she said, but I don't know anything about cameras. So I got you a chat with this guy who runs a camera company. And, and, uh, and it kind of turned into an interview without me even realizing. And he offered me a job, um, which is amazing. Um, and I worked for them. Uh, it's like doing an apprenticeship, I guess, for two years. So I was given camera kit so I had uh, lighting and camera and sound and there were there were there were eight units in this big lockup and and we all the assistant all the camera assistants were in charge of one unit I, I had I had ultimate uh, faith uh, uh, youthful exuberance in my artistic ability but I was rubbish at organization and uh, 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 making sure everything was there and 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 the technical things that you have to learn in order to make those artistic things happen. And, and, and God knew that. So he put me in a situation where I, I had to uh, just get down and do the work, essentially. So it was a very, very important experience those two years. I also have in, in my notes here, Phil, that you were involved with translating of the Jesus film. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was so during that year, working with the Worldwide Message Tribe, it was also through another company called Kerygma, who did lots of outreach to Muslim countries. And they translated the Jesus video um, into uh, incredible number of languages, you know, things like Kurdistan and, and Azerbaijan and all, all the Istans, essentially. Loads of, loads of amazing, uh, and so there would be these huge towers of VHS recorders and you'd put the master in at the top and it would duplicate them down ding 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 and we'd stick labels on them and we'd send them off um around the world wow how yeah. exciting so you uh i mean that being involved in global mission frontline evangelism like that we, we don't often think you can do you can reach uh, azerbaijan from manchester but even back in the the 90s when you were working with the tribe you could um and, and having that sense of call on your life that you felt god speak to you to to be a, a form of influencing the world and the society for Jesus that must have felt at that moment that you were, you'd made it you were doing what you'd you'd dreamed of and what you felt God called you to yeah well yeah although although during that year I remember very clearly because I was asked by uh by the truck the worldwide message the message trust they wanted me to stay on and go full-time with them um and so I prayed a lot about that and and I felt very clearly uh, that God was saying that I that I was supposed to be a Christian in the media, not doing Christian media. Do you see the difference? Yeah. So uh, that was always my that was my first calling, and I wanted to stay true to that to be a Christian in the media, uh, and 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 to have accepted that job with the tribe, I would have ended up doing uh, specifically Christian media, which is also a fantastic thing, but it just wasn't wasn't what wasn't what God was calling me to. Well, so talk to us about some of the, the particular 
challenges then of being a Christian in the media? Uh, challenges and opportunities, I should say. Some of the things that come to your mind as we talk about that. Yeah. It, do you know, I was talking with someone the other day, uh, probably because of, of the subject matter of the most recent uh, New Ground Academy Saturday. But, do you know, being a Christian in the media, it, it's a bit like coming out, as, 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 as a gay person would say, when you, when you strike up the courage to tell someone that you're gay, that you're, you're worried about that reaction. It's a bit like that as a Christian sometimes, and not exclusively in the media at all, of course, but, but, but lots of people have uh, prejudices when, when they hear that you're a Christian. Um, and it's hard to, to tell people you're a Christian. Uh, you have to kind of do it early, or, or the longer you leave it, the, the, more, the more kind of knotted up inside you get about, about saying it. But it tends to be, it tends to come out of, of the classic, what did you do at the weekend conversation? And you say, oh yeah, yeah, I had a good, good, good weekend. Yeah, I was playing drums at church this Sunday and you know, we've got a band and that's kind of fun. And that'll stop them, you know, oh, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. You know, that's, that's usually how it, how it comes about. So, so um, can you give us any, since we mentioned Teletubbies, can you give us any um, lifting of the lid behind the scenes, stories of Teletubbies? Was Tinky Winky really, <laughs> um, I don't know, give us some secrets on them. <laughs> uh, well, Tinky Winky, well, he was the one that was sacked. Uh, was he? he? Yeah. <laughs> Dave Thompson was sacked. Yeah. He wasn't very, he wasn't very kids TV. He was a stand-up comedian and he was a little bit risque. And they kept, they didn't like him because he was making Tinky Winky too camp, but too feminine. But they, to be fair, he, his props were a handbag and a tutu. <laughs> so, you know, he was just working with what he had, you know. So he was a nice guy. Uh, they were all massive. So Tinky Winky was, was nine feet tall. Yeah. And, and then they met, because they got real people inside and, and, and they would make the set massive. So that so that the Teletubbies look small. So you, so we had giant flowers, and uh, they they dug this huge bunker into a, a farm somewhere uh, near Stratford on Avon. Um, so that wherever your camera was in in that dip in that huge bunker, your your horizon was Teletubby land. So, but if you walk to the top of 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 that slope, then you could see the tractors and the and the sheep and the you know whatever. Um, so Teletubby Land isn't a real place, is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. It kind of is a real place. It kind of is. It's, yeah. it's about what? A, uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just next to, to, to Rosie and Jim or whatever they were called on there. So that was my question. Is it filmed outside or is it filmed in a studio? Yeah. It's outside. It's outside. It's outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we use, pol just to get geeky for a minute, we use, lot, we use polarizer, polarizing filters to make the skies look super blue and the grass super ah. green. You are um, revealing all the trade secrets now. <laughs> um, and they all walked around, and they had to have they would they would, they had to have heads off. They had to take their heads off every fifteen minutes, or they got really grumpy and sweary. <laughs> and that wouldn't make for a good kids kids TV show. <laughs> no, because of the lack of oxygen inside those giant great big masks, and they all had massive, massive rippling neck muscles as well, because the heads were so big and so heavy. That, and they spent uh, six months of the year in these costumes. They all they all had giant neck muscles. There mm. you go. 
So you, you mentioned Pet Rescue and adverts and working on film. You've obviously been on quite a lot of different shows. Um, but I'd love to get, so like you lifted the lid on Teletubbies, you can give us some um, insights into what it's like on A Place in the Sun if you get to go to all those nice places for a long time. Um, and location, location, location. But um, I suppose I'm wondering how how does the fact that you're a Christian influence the way that you um, work out your job and the, the kind of the impact that you try to leave on people or on the set or on the way that you're just doing a role? Can you talk to us about how you, you think through that? You tend to find on, on TV sets and whether it's um, uh, Father Brown would be a good example. I worked on Father Brown recently, um, which is a quite a big unit, lots of people. Um, and TV sets and film sets tend to be tend to be very moany, complaining type places. Uh, there's always something going wrong and there's a lot of stress involved because it's a creative endeavor it tends to be quite quite a lot of um, arguments on sets about about the way people think you should do things and um, you can just you can stand out as a Christian quite easily just by the way that you conduct yourself um, and uh, I, I try and I try and be this little island of calm, I guess, in in a in a world of stress and worry, um, and that that takes. I, I think that takes that takes. That's probably due to lots of years of experience now being able to do that. You have to, you know, you do your job, and you're also calm and collected, and you can be the person that people turn to when they're a bit stressed. Um, uh, and also you can, I think, I think um, you can take a pride in your work and you, if, you, if you do things like you're doing them for Jesus, um, so very often filming things can, even though it sounds exciting, it, even on a, a big show, you're doing the same thing day in, day out. It is a bit like an industrial factory process. Uh, once you get to know how that process works so it can become uh, quite repetitive um, and so the challenge is to is to keep keep the quality high and to do it like you're doing it for the first time and, and I think as, as we, when there's a there's a lot in in the in the bible about how how you can do do that like it's doing it for Jesus essentially yeah, there is a challenge that people face, isn't there, in any industry or work where you you get caught in the monotony and the the trap. And life isn't exciting; it's just pretty ordinary a lot of the time. And and how 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 do we and what does it look like to follow Jesus in the ordinariness of life? And how do we stay faithful when I think this is part of the Israelites from the Old Testament? The the other gods, the other nations, it's different. It's new. It's exciting. It's fresh, but it's forbidden, and it will, it will end up being the thing that destroys them. And often as Christians, we find that there are these other things I could do or I could chop and change a lot or there's different ways of doing things, different experiences I could dabble in. But Jesus called me to be faithful to him and learning to find a, a rhythm of rest and joy and delight in that 
rather than constantly chasing new things, learning to be tethered to Christ. Um, it's, not, it's not the same as essentially what you're talking about in, in the, um, it's the repetitiveness of working a, a job. But I think there is a, a fair amount of crossover there in life generally of being learning to do something. What is it? Um, I think it's Nietzsche of all people calls it a long obedience in the same direction. <laughs> learning a long obedience in the same direction in a job uh, as in relationships um, is, is one of the challenges we face as Christians in a society like this. Let's take, an, let's take some time to talk about um, what happened in 2011 with um, the stillbirth of your daughter. Um, describe to us the experience leading up to that and how that impacted your marriage, your faith and, uh, and the journey you've gone on. Uh, so Laurie, Laurie Susie, uh, was her name is her name and uh yeah we it was our uh, third no sorry fourth pregnancy so we'd had a we'd had a, a molar pregnancy the year before which is also quite traumatic that's where that's where something's growing in the womb but then it turns out to just be a weird collection of cells that's possibly cancerous and there's there's no actual fetus there's no actual baby there so we had that the year before and then so then um uh, and then Laurie was 20, uh, 29 weeks. I think that's right. And and um, um, it was, I'm just remembering it now, taking me by surprise. Uh, not, not your question. I mean, I mean, my memory's like, oh, I haven't thought about this for, for, for a little while. Um, so Rach thought something was, was up. She, 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 something didn't feel right and she'd she'd um she went to the we, we went to the doctor and they put us on a on a on one of those ticker tape scan things and everything seemed to be fine we were on that for an hour so they sent us home and then um and this was this was it was it was new year's eve when this was all happening and then and then and then um new year's day Rach was like having a bath because because that usually got uh, the baby moving around and she couldn't she just couldn't feel any movement so she was kind of a bit a bit worried and so I was like I'll get just get down the hospital it's just gonna you know if it's gonna put your mind at rest just you know go and have another scan and I'll look after the kids so we got two two older sons um and then um and then she called me from the hospital to say that the that, Laurie had died. Well, she wasn't called Laurie at that point, but the, the, the baby had died. Um, it's very weird, very surreal. So her her parents live quite. Rachel's parents live quite close. So Hillary came over, and she dropped me at the hospital, uh, and took our two boys back to their house. Um, yeah, and I went in to see Rachel with this. She was still pregnant the baby was was dead it, and I, I could I couldn't I couldn't help myself praying you know first thing dear Lord Jesus please I don't know what do I pray but bring this baby back to life I didn't I didn't really have I don't know if I had faith for that but that was on my heart so I just prayed that anyway so then they gave um they gave Rachel some a special uh pill drug to induce um, labour. So we went home 
bizarrely, it's funny how you remember these things, bizarrely that we, we put on a slow-cooked casserole. So we got home, we ate the casserole, and then they started having contractions, so we went back to the hospital um, to have the baby. Um, so she arrived on New Year's Day 2011, sometime in the evening. Uh, it was very weird. It was very, a very silent birth. Um, so when you give birth to a baby that's died, there's, there's no noise. That was, that was quite a shock. Um, and um, her jaw would, would hang open, which was, was quite traumatic. Um, yeah, that was kind of weird. But she, she, she just looked like a perfect baby. She, she had some bruising on one side of her face. Um, and then, yeah. So then I, so then I, I sang, I sang to her. So I, I, I used to sing to my boys at each evening. Uh, you know, turn, turn my, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You know that old-fashioned lullaby. So I, and then I, so I sang to her. First thing I did after she was born. And then we had to. Um, you know what we had to do. We, we were told we could wait, we could spend as long as we wanted with her, but she was in a little um, you know, cot next to Rachel's bed. Um, it's very strange. It's, it, it's um, I remember looking at her. It, it was it was about two or three o'clock in the morning. Now we were all pretty, you know, uh, uh, I don't know quite the words to describe, but exhausted and. Uh, very emotionally drained and I remember looking at her and I could have sworn her chest was going up and down I to look, it was it was like it was like I was hallucinating it really was it's a very strong feeling I had to go and check that she wasn't oh maybe 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 she's not dead maybe she's not dead um so yeah so that was a very traumatic experience and we had to, and then we and then we had to leave the hospital without without the baby that was the hardest bit, and then drive home. Why? Why? That was also very strange. Driving up the A3 from Kingston, very slowly, and um, uh, it was very odd. And and then our world kind of started to collapse, basically. And yeah, you kind of don't really cope very well when something like that happens. Um, I had a lot of ang anger. Um, I used to punch inanimate objects quite a lot and hurt my fists. Um, and our oh, eldest got got very anxious about being left in nursery. That kind of separation anxiety, you know, just just in case we didn't come back, or you know, maybe maybe mum and dad could die. That sudden realization that death is a real thing. Um, so we both uh, we both really suffered quite badly. And the other thing it did for me, um, so we often talk about, you know, Laurie's legacy, because um, it was wonderful to have her in, in our lives for that short period of time. And she was a blessing as well. Um, was, was when, so when, when a child dies, if you have a child that dies, one of the things you can do is say, I can't think of anything else, anything worse that could happen to me. That's, that's, that's kind of the worst thing ever that could happen to a person for, for a child to die, for a give or take. Um, 
and and you kind of go, oh, uh, sod it. I'm gonna. Um, it, it, it means those other things that I was scared of dealing with are no longer very scary. So I had lots of um, childhood trauma and issues um, that I'd not really unpacked. And um, so I did a lot of counseling uh, to help me with my grief for my daughter. But what happened was a, a lot of other things came out about my past and, and, and my family stuff. Um, and I don't think I, I would have had the courage to, to look at those things had it not been for her death. Um, oh, it's just a privilege to hear you talk about it. It's obviously very raw still. I mean, it's almost 10 years on now. It, yeah. Um, well, we, we, we say whenever someone asks us how many um, children we have, we if I don't know them very well or, or if it's the first time meeting them, I'll, I'll say I've got three sons. Because to say I've got three children feels uh, it doesn't feel fair on her, but at the same time I don't want to, uh, you know, put that on someone. It's quite a big. <laughs> I've, I've got four four children. One of them's dead. You know, you can't really say that. So I would I my way around it would be I've got I've got I've got three sons. And then if 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 that relationship grows and it's a good relationship, or if it's someone I'll, I trust, I'll, I'll I'll let them know about Laurie as well. So we got yeah we got four kids as far as I'm concerned we've got four children just for a while. Mm. I mean you mentioned there that um, you don't want to put that on someone when you talk to them. Um, have you have you noticed that it, people do don't know what to say? They find it very hard to talk to you about it. Did you did you feel as though it was a, a silent um, a silent grief because people were so traumatized by it themselves they didn't know how to bring it up? Um, how was how was it received and how did you feel comforted by friends? So when, when, you've, when you've lost someone, when you've really lost someone, what you tend to do is, is you can spot the people that get it. And it's usually people who've also uh, been through some kind of grief over a loved one. Um, and, and some people are not very good at, at, at saying stuff. Um, and you just kind of, so at the beginning, I would take it very personally if someone says something stupid, um, uh, and then and then you kind of get over that and realise that yeah, some people just don't know what to say, uh, but but some people have uh, uh, it's people who aren't scared of it that that is is, is that, that's good. So any excuse to talk about your uh, or in my case my daughter or whoever it is that you've lost is a is a really good positive thing and I was I was brought up to uh, to believe that that happy emotions are good and that sad emotions are bad you mustn't feel sad you have to feel happy and um, it took me ages to realize that sad emotions are really really good and really really helpful and really necessary um, so to be sad with someone is is is, is fantastic it's a really good thing. I'm saying it with a smile on my face because it's it's so it's so important. In fact, I, I God gave me a picture while I was doing my counselling. Um, so I used to think that feelings were like uh, you had a hot and a cold tap. So so the hot tap was the was the the happy feelings and and the and the good stuff that's going on in life, and the cold tap is the bad things and the sadness and and brokenness of the, you know things that are happening. 
but it, that's just that's not that's not how well, that's not how we as as human beings work we we have a mix we're a mixer tap like in the kitchen and if you block are off those sad feelings you're also stopping all of the the good happy feelings coming out as well and that's when and that's when you go into, into in that's when pe people start to feel depressed because they're not allowed to feel those sad feelings and if you don't let people feel sad they're never going to be able to feel happy as well but you're kind of blocking off both of those things um, so yeah, our friends were amazing, um, absolutely amazing. Jeremy and Susie Howe were, oh, that's gonna make me cry. Jeremy <laughs> um, and Susie Howe were very lovely. Um, and um, Jason and Ruth Byrne were, were, were wonderful as well. And Matt and Helen Beanie, um, we had some very good friends around us when it happened, um, who looked out for us uh, and let us cry and be sad. Um, yeah, it's funny, you know. It, it's when um, I don't know if this is relevant to our conversation. But I'll say it anyway. Um, it's when people show care uh, for you that that's what really uh, makes me cry. So when people show show love towards you, that's 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 incredibly powerful. Yeah. And there is something amazing is the, the gift of friendship isn't there that doesn't take away the pain but it does allow you to feel it rather than feel ashamed of it and allows you to bring it into the social sphere rather than just the private hidden space and I guess when someone's seen you and validated you in those really low places there must be a just a an acceptance of yourself and what you're going through recognizing that this is okay it's not it's not something I need to rush through, get over, move on from. It's now part of the the structure of your life and the way that you see the world forever. Yeah, exactly. It's part of who you are, and 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 to, to try and fix it for people. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, it is a way of denying her existence and denying that she, you know, she was born. Yeah, there's a great. If, if you've not, if, I'm sure you've seen Inside Out, that Disney film. That's a fantastic way of explaining it. Mm. The way that as she grows up, her her happy core memories become much more mixed mm. with sadness, and and to see that as a as a positive thing. I'm sure there's probably Bible verses <laughs> to put into those. But I can't well, it's, it's we. I think we perhaps in maybe in the modern West. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a historian, but we do seem to have a strange relationship with our emotions. <laughs> um, and like you said, we we almost have quite an infantile attitude that seems to want everything to be skipping and rainbows and happiness. And that may be correlated to the secularizing of the society, of society that the, the more we've closed off the heavens and the afterlife, the more we've expected this life to provide nothing but bliss and joy. And that, of course, is a very shallow, superficial um, way of seeing reality. And it's very unrealistic. And I, I was struck when I read uh, Keller's book on walking with God through pain and suffering, where he actually said one of the reasons Christianity conquered was because it, it offered a more satisfying um, 
vision of what happens after we die and a more satisfying vision of how to walk through pain and suffering than the other the alternative philosophies did of its time because we have a a messiah who's died and resurrected so there is hope there is real hope but there is also a real recognition of life's brutality and and hardship and it's part of the the gift of christianity to the world but it's part of the gift that we have as christians that we have a god who's who can who can we can genuinely say he grieves with us and he knows what grief is like. A bit like you said about friends who've not experienced it, almost don't know how to you know, help someone who is grieving. Well, thank goodness we have a God who has experienced it and has lost a son himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think for anyone who's looking for, you know, the, the meaning of life, it's not about finding that thing that makes you happy. It's not about finding happiness in this world. It's about finding the thing that can get you through your darkest hour you can find that and i would i would argue that that's that's jesus and and his love for us that's beautiful actually as an alternative quest to the search for happiness it's actually the the search for the 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 most robust source of comfort and strength in the midst of a life that is very turbulent and you're right as christians we we would say that is christ and he he is an ever-present help in times of trouble and he is with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he does somehow prepare a table for us in the midst of conflict and, and trials. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there, there, were, there were moments when, when I, I was thinking, uh, <laughs> the last thing I want right now is God helping me. Okay, can you just go away because you let my daughter die? You know, there, there were lots of moments like that and yeah talk to us about how it does shape your the way you think about god as father and your relationship with him as you know and i'm not projecting this on you i just aware that certainly if i look at myself my relationship with god can tend towards god as genie he'll fix everything but actually the more mature relationship with god is recognizing he's not genie but he's still good and how do you journey towards that moving from moving from maybe an immature understanding of God to perhaps a more mature vision of him, how did it impact on your, the way you thought and related to God? Um, do you want the long answer or the short? I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you the, the shortest answer I've got is, uh, I don't know why he let Laurie die. And I don't understand why he did. And I'm going to ask him about that when I get there. But despite that, I'm going to trust him. That's my, that's my short answer. Um, mm. um, the longer one involving, you know, the fallenness of this world and the fact that um, in his wisdom, God didn't, you know, some, some babies do catch very rare illnesses like Laurie. In the womb, and um, I, I, I don't adhere to the whole. You know, he did. Of course, he didn't do it to teach me a lesson. But even the thought that he let it happen in order to teach me a lesson is—I it, it, don't think—I don't agree with that. I think, for, for some reason, it, he allowed it to happen, um, and I've got to just trust in him and see if I can get through it. I, st I still struggle with that massively. I, I, you know, when you, when you pray for your daughter not to die and she dies, or if, if you pray for a relative who's got cancer, 
to die and they die well then do you do you carry on praying that real the realization that you alluded to there is that um the secret things belong to god we have the revealed things and we're to work with the revealed things the revealed things we see in the cross is that he's good um but the awful evil takes place in the world as well we see that in the cross as well um and he, i think your your answer that you gave is is one of those things that it, it's theologically accurate and it's the sort of thing that anyone who has heard a talk on suffering can say but it really doesn't mean anything until you've had to work the answer out for yourself there's a there's a personal knowledge so that you own those words that you you gave in your short answer there um you know that that short answer i I could get from a textbook but it doesn't mean anything to me until i've fought for it in the fire and the furnace like you have and so i can see how it's not something that you can just kind of say here's the answer now live it it's it's a lot more lived than that yeah 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 that's why you've got to be very careful when you're counseling friends on stuff on stuff like that don't 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 be too quick to provide an answer because they because even if it is the right answer and it probably is if you're a wise christian doesn't mean anything unless that person has Mm. worked it out for themselves how did you as a husband um find that you could learn to comfort and support Rach through obviously we're not I can't ask about her experience that's that's her story to tell I suppose but how did you as a husband learn resources on how to help and comfort her and some of the the lessons that you walked through together as a couple perhaps um grief is is is, um it's a very selfish emotion um you just concentrate on yourself um So we kind of did a lot of grieving separately, which sounds odd, but that's what you, that's what worked for us. And, and possibly, I don't know if there's, there's mm-hmm. no right or wrong when it comes to losing a daughter. <laughs> you kind of, you know, do what's right for you, I think, to a certain extent. Um, but what we, what we found was, was, was that what was frustrating, I guess, was um, we would compensate for each other. So if, if I could see that Rachel was having a really bad day, I would, I would uh, just put it to one side and be the one to look after the kids. And if I was falling apart, then she would do the same. So that the hardest thing was, was that we were never on the same level. One of us was, was massively down. And so the other one had to, had to look after the kids and, 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 and crack on. Um, so it's very rare that we had moments where we were grieving together or or having a light day, with the exception of there were a few times of quite early on when we both felt really, really fine. Um, and, and we we were just we suddenly went, ah, oh, so I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely remember this two or three times. Ah, oh, someone must be praying for us because do you feel I feel really light? I feel like everything's going to be okay she's like yeah yeah i feel that too um so that happened a few times that was interesting um and obviously the process was 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 much much harder for rachel being the one who was carrying our daughter um and for her to be inside her body for that length of time um um 
Yeah, and we celebrate her birthday every year, even now. And and that that got easier. The first year was a was we were both, you know, crying messes on the floor, <laughs> um, letting off balloons with messages written, you know, helium balloons up into the sky. That was nice. Um, and we've got a tree. There's a tree in in Richmond Park where her ashes are scattered. Um, not one of the big oak trees. We didn't think that was appropriate. One of the smaller ones um, near, up near Pen Ponds um, that we go and visit sometimes. We go and leave her gifts there sometimes. We, we, we often we, we do stone painting with the kids and then we'll go and hide the stones up in the tree or something. And um, we make little birds. So she's a, what's going to make me cry again? So she, she was our little bird. That was what we used to call her. Um, partly because of that Bible verse about not one sparrow falling to the ground without your heavenly father knowing about it. Um, so we, we made these little cut out birds and go and hang them in the tree. That's a nice thing to do as well. Yeah, but I still miss her. No. Yeah. That's Laurie. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to talk about her. So odd, you know, even um, when they had, they had to do an autopsy to find out how she died because they weren't sure if the infection got in after the waters had broken or whether the infection caused the waters to break. Anyway, so we had to go in and, and they had this report on about her and it had all the, all the kind of just biological facts, like this is how much her liver weighed and this is, and I was pouring over this document because it was, all we had about her, really. That's very odd. Um, that you can, yeah. When you've got nothing, you, you kind of grab onto the things that you do have. You know? Never a scientific yeah. information felt so personal and um, intimate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, was, it was odd. Yeah, it was odd. Very strange. Yeah. So there you go. Well, it's an honour, privilege to have you share that, and like you said, to be able to talk about her. I imagine it, it, all those important things that help keep her in the present and keep the impact of her life alive and meaningful. Um, and then when people do lo lose people, to actually, I remember when I lost my dad, and people people said, someone said to me once, "I'm sorry for your loss. Enough said," because you could tell they were uncomfortable. And they didn't want me to feel uncomfortable. And I thought, no, no, it's not enough said. <laughs> like, let's just keep talking about it. Like, I, it's great. Like, I, I, I don't mind laughing or crying yeah, about exactly. this. This is beautiful because my, it feels like my dad's in the room or he, you know, you, you relive those moments that actually make, help crystallize, clarify for you what it is about life that's so lovely and delightful that God's given us. Do you know, if I was to give any advice to anyone about stuff like that, I'd, I'd say, listen, just, would you, would you just listen properly? Okay. <laughs> because for example, someone in our community commu was visiting our community group and, and um, they had a, something on the wall and it was like a, it was a funny saying and it was something that her dad used to say uh, who died. And, um, and so I was, I was asking questions about, about, about her dad and um and, and i was able to go oh you know 
he sounds like a brilliant he sounds like a great guy tell me tell me more about him and and just little things like that can can be really nice for someone to hear mm. tell me some stories tell me tell me a story about your about your dad jed my dad yeah um i have his I have his cricket bat on the wall here. I just recently hung it on my shed because I found it in my wardrobe and I was going through it. And he was a big, big sportsman. And uh, so you're going to, if I answer this question too well, you're in danger of making me cry. Um, well, that's okay, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think you, you get those moments with your dad where you see the glint in his eye, the thing that makes them really happy. And often with our dads, they work because they, they have to provide. And they don't often enjoy their job. And I know my dad would always said that it was his job that gave him the stress that led to his cancer that killed him. But the, the times where I saw the real glint in his eye was when he'd play sport, and particularly when we'd play as a get as a family. Was he a batter? Yeah, he was. A, he was a wicketkeeper actually, and. Uh, yeah, and I I can remember on one occasion watching him play and and uh, and the hearing the ball go past the stumps, but then hearing a very audible crack as the ball hit his nose, <laughs> and uh, and and a couple of times I think in our family life he would come home with with broken bits and pieces off his face or or blood or trips to the hospital, um, and. Yeah, uh, he just he loved his cricket, and I feel I feel slightly ashamed that I'm not a big cricket fan. <laughs> um, but I've given myself permission in recent years to go. I don't think I'm a big cricket fan. I think that's okay. I think I like cricket because it connects me with my dad, and we grew up a lot watching him play. But um, yeah, the thing that you love is is remembering those times where you'd play you'd play catch with your dad, or they throw the ball, and he taught me to bowl and taught me to bat, and well, you know those things are beautiful memories where you're. You're just remembering the stuff you did together that brought you joy and delight. And I think it's probably just it's shaped the way that I live my life. In, in, I don't think I'm in danger of, um, of neglecting my family because I, I realise it's, it's this. But actually, I think as a Christian, it's my legacy as how, how well I can mirror the Heavenly Father is going to be my legacy that I leave for my kids. So I want to do that well. Um, but yeah, it certainly certainly left that big impact on me. Um, thanks for asking about him. Oh, you're so welcome. He sounds like a great guy. <laughs> You've rehearsed that line before. I don't believe you. But he was. <laughs> he was. <laughs> um, Phil, we're going to have to draw our, our time together to a close. It's been a, a really, uh, feels like a very sacred thing to be able to talk to you about, Laurie. Um, thank you for sharing and for... I mean, our, our times discussing life as a camera operator seem like a distant memory, but um, there's We've some... come a long way. That's a good conversation when you can't remember where it started. There's some really valuable insights as well for people who are looking to manage that work-life balance. And perhaps this is a healthy place to leave it as we talk about the, the most meaningful and important things in life to do with trusting God. It is to do, it is to do with providing for our families and working a, a job or a career, if we're lucky, that satisfies us. But actually, God has put us here as as persons who are, who are here to interact with other human beings, to love them, to express his heart for people in the way that we, we give ourselves relationally. Even as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, in our pre-conversation, 17 years you've been at the same church. I think things like that, yeah, they yeah. speak of the meaning of life that is um, commitment, relationships, responsibility over a long time. And as we talk about Laurie and as my dad, we remember the things that makes life most precious at all. Um, 
So thank you for that. Thanks. It's been really nice to chat. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great.